we're talking about critical race theory, which I'm not sure is a thing that exists. And partly I'm trying to figure out is whether or not it exists. And if it does exist, how? And however it exists, how does it manifest itself? To do that, we're talking to Reggie O. Reginald C. O., professor of law at the Cleveland Marshall School of Law, or I guess College of Law. Do you, do you prefer <clears throat> Reggie? Do you prefer professor? Do you prefer eminent archon? How would you like to be uh, re referred Eminent to? archon. Uh, that sounds good, but no, you can call me Reggie. Very good. Very good. So I'll start with that first question. Mm -hmm. Does critical race theory exist? It, it, yes, it does exist. And it's it's been existing since the 80s, the late 80s, when um, it was founded at, you can actually point to a founding moment um, at the University of Wisconsin, where they held the first critical race theory workshop. And from that, uh, since then, there's been critical race theory has been off and running, and there is a, a huge body of scholarship that we call critical race theory. It started with law and legal academia, and it spread through all other kinds of discipline. And it's quite amazing, actually, uh, to, to know about just how much it's expanded since it first started. I'm sure when they when the first uh, critical race theorists convened in Wisconsin in the late 80s, they had no idea that it would spread beyond legal academia, but it definitely has. So yes, there is such a thing as critical race theory. It's not like Santa Claus. So what is it? What it is now, that is much harder to, um, that's a harder question to answer. It's, uh, there's no, clear definition of what critical race theory is and there's no you know there's no consensus on what it's about i think i can reduce it to some of the basic aspects of uh critical race theory and hopefully this will help and give you some sense of what critical race theory is about so i, I would think about critical race theory in terms of the problem it tries to address the end goal of critical race theory, that the end goal that they seek, and then how they go about trying to achieve that end goal. Okay, so I'd start with the problem that CRT is seeking to address. It's about systemic or structural racial inequality in various aspects of society. Uh, but when we talk about critical race legal theory, it's focused on structural systemic racial inequalities in our legal and political systems and reproduced and produced by our legal and political systems. So that's the problem. And then in terms of the end goal, the end goal is to eliminate right structural inequalities and to further racial justice, equality, liberation. And then the means, um, how to achieve the end goal. Uh, the means are the tools and methods uh, that focus on race as a unit of analysis to uncover those systemic racial inequalities, determine how those inequalities are produced and reinforced, and then provide remedies for those inequalities. Um, and when we talk about means or tools, I, when I think of critical race theory, I think of method. It's a way of looking at society, the world, the law, politics, to figure out um, where and how racial inequalities exist, and then to do something about it. Um, so I would start there with a definition and you can see how broad that definition is and a lot of scholarship thinking can fit under that broad umbrella. And really to call something scholarship critical race theory, part of it is self-identification. In other words, a scholar says I'm doing critical race theory. Um, so that's the broad understanding. And then I think I would focus on the method Right. Um, I think the crit critiques of critical race theory focuses on its effect on um, whites and white children, but and how it's how it's treating whites as those who are privileged and oppressors. And that's not what critical race theory is about. It's not about labeling white people in some way. It's about method, tools, uh, tools of analysis to get at 
and uncover racial inequalities. And then obviously, once you do that, saying here's how these racial inequalities exist in our systems, then to do something about it. So I, I, that's how I would define it. So I want to get into that more to actually just understand mm-hmm. what is at issue. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of Americans, I think their first exposure to it was because Fox News seemed to, seems to really not like right. it. Okay, like I think it's a right. really bad deal. And that means there's now millions of Americans who right. are more confident that they are deeply opposed to critical race theory than probably who could define it. Okay, mm-hmm. so the, my right. guess is, right, you know, there's got to be a third of the people, maybe it's worse, that already uh, have already concluded that this theory is bad, mm-hmm. right? Right. But I'm not sure there are a third of the American people who could define it. <laughs> I think it might be. Two percent they could define it. Right. <clears throat> How did it get so, I don't know, popular, unpopular, notable? Uh, it was a deliberate strategy. Um, I can't name the f- person, but a person basically bankrolled, provided funding to create a controversy over critical race theory. And then um, a particular uh, conservative theorist uh, political theorist Christopher Rufo then took off and started writing heavily about attacking critical race theory, um, using disinformation, exaggerate, making exaggerated points, really um, not really telling the truth about critical race theory. And then it, it was off and running. And then Fox News picked up on it. And then it got repeated the whole, you know, daily, right? They would talk about critical race theory and all the negative negative aspects of it and and there you go it was literally a controversy over critical race theory was literally made up manufactured by specific actors and uh just i think in 2021 that's when it was towards the end of the campaign uh in 2020 the presidential campaign when critical race theory started to become part of the news cycle and then it jumped in terms of uh, exposure and level of um, right level of exposure jumped in 2021, um, especially on Fox News. And there, there was I was at a, a presentation where a person talked about they could actually talk uh, pinpoint how often critical race theory came up on Fox News, and it was dramatic increase uh, in the early 20 in early 2021. And then once that started, that just it just got it just picked up momentum from then then on, and it seeped into pu- public popular culture. And now, virtually a lot of conservatives think critical race theory is being taught in schools, uh, elementary and secondary schools, that it means certain things, and um, that's actually a lot of that is actually not true at all. So that's how it got started. It was actually de- a deliberate, um, I don't want to say con, but it was it was some a deliberate strategy to make critical race theory and a political issue. How did you get engaged with the question? When did it when would it get on your radar screen? Well, uh, I've been in legal academia for about two decades now. Uh, I can't believe I've been teaching for that long, and I. I wouldn't say I am a critical race theorist, but I, all my friends are, all my colleagues are critical race theorists, and I've con- been part of critical race symposiums and conferences, um, and I'm a friend of critical race theory, and I th- think a lot of its methods are sound, make a lot of sense in getting at racial inequality. So I've always, I've been interested in critical race theory for a very long time, and then in terms of the article I wrote about in the Washington Monthly um, earlier in the summer, actually I was asked by the, one of the editors to t- write about it and said, "What you know? give us your take about the critical race theory controversy. And I wrote the article and that, and so in terms of writing the article, that's how I got involved. Um, I was asked about it and since then it's been Critical race theory has been on my um, radar in terms of its impact on politics and democracy rather than the actual theory itself for some of the reasons I talk about in the article. Do you think, first of all, then, Mm -hmm. 
part of the discussion about critical race theory that we might have is actually what it is. What does it teach and what's worth learning? Uh, Another is what is the discussion about it, right? The shadow, the shadow being cast by this phrase seems much larger than what this Mm -hmm. thing actually is. Some number of law professors, you know, trying to get published. Uh, Right. The uh, and therefore even how to get into it. Is tricky for me. Like even what the most interesting questions I ask are tricky for me. I guess I, but yeah. where where some of my I'll lead with my frustration, uh, is this in part an example of people in academia who are not prioritizing the, uh, not prioritizing the messageability of their work, uh, and therefore leaving themselves open to becoming uh, political footballs. Uh, rhetorical rhetorical devices for large and small media entities all around and not really thinking about um, how is this going to play in Peoria? Well, in legal academia, I I would have to say I am still shocked and I just, it just baffles, it's baffling to me that something like critical race theory, a very kind of an esoteric concept um, limited um, for a long time to legal academia has now taken this gone this uh, taken on this life of its own and everyone right has at least heard about it and the, the, and um, have maybe even have some opinion about it and so I'm surprised that it has gotten this traction uh, personally so in terms of the response I think you're getting to why isn't critical race theory talked about discussed, written about in a way that could appeal to someone in Peoria and people, people in Peoria could understand it. Well, it's legal academic theory. It's high theory. And so it's really not meant, it was, it's meant for other law, lawyers and law professors. That's who read critical race theory. And there was, I don't think anyone who's a critical race theorist ever thought it would get into the mainstream the way it has. And so it's, it's almost left legal academic scrambling, critical race theorists scrambling because now they have to respond and the thing is they're legal academics academics are not you know are not political operatives they're not focused on messaging that's not what legal academics do right so it's not like oh why aren't they uh, doing better counter messaging about critical race why aren't they making it more accessible to the general public that's really not part of their job description right they're they're about writing law review articles, books aimed at an academic audience. And so if to the extent that there needs to be counter myths, I think there are now critical race theorists who are realizing they have to do this counter messaging and speak about critical race theory to the general public. And that's just starting. Kimberly Crenshaw, a a founding critical race theorist, has a think tank which is devoted now to developing counter messaging. And, uh, but it's really, and that's maybe that's why there's a hole in the counter messaging with respect from the left or from liberals, uh, because the people who has the most knowledge about it, right, are not, they don't do messaging. And then the political operatives who would do messaging, they don't know much about critical race theory. And so maybe that's part of an explanation for why there has not been a strong counter messaging response against the attack on critical race theory. And I'm thinking about messaging and counter messaging. I'm even just like picking a title because I want to I want to yeah. understand what it is. And then we, maybe we can pick mm-hmm. a title together or maybe listeners could mm-hmm. propose a title. Mm-hmm. As I understand it, I think maybe from your article, there are four basic themes. Of, and, and I'm not mm-hmm. talking about the shadow that's been cast on a wall by right. big and small media operations, right. and political operations, but actually some people who said, hey, let's publish a couple papers about this thing. Right. I think you identify four major themes mm-hmm. of critical race theory scholarship. What are those major themes? Well, in my article, I said the first major theme, and I already mentioned it, uh, uh, racial justice. The goal is about critical race theory is about achieving racial justice and racial equality. And I mentioned in the article, it's the emphasis is on actual racial equality, actual racial justice, not racial justice or equality in name only. Um, so it's about really about improving the concrete, concretely the lives of um, mainly people of color, but I, as I talk about elsewhere, it's not just 
critical race theory is not just limited to racial justice. It's more, it's broader than that. Um, at least now it used to be, it was narrow, it was a uh, more focused when it was started, but it's much broader now. That's the first aspect or theme of critical race theory. I think the second theme is that in seeking to achieve that goal, it's really trying to figure out what race and racism is really about. It's about engaging with reality and the complexity of race and racism and racial inequality. And that is important because I think there's a tendency to simplify issues of regards to race. So for example, people often uh, cite to Martin Luther King and say race, Racial issues can be reduced to not treating people by the color of their skin, but judging them on the content of their character. And they reduce it to that statement. And critical race theory says, no, you cannot reduce it to a simple statement like that. It's much more complex. And Martin Luther King thought, actually thought it was much more complex than that. And so part of critical race theory is exploring all the complexities, the nuances, um, the intricacies of how race and racism operates in society. And, in, and for legal theorists, it's about how it operates in law, uh, within law. And then a third, uh, I already alluded to this, it's the analysis is really nuanced, really careful. And this fo- follows right from dealing with complex phenomenon like race and racism. The analysis has to be nuanced. It has to be careful. It has to be uh, exploratory because you can't, you don't really know everything about, it's not something where you know everything about race, right? It's about something where it's race and racism constantly evolves over time and space. And so the, the analysis has to be nuanced and careful, not simplified. Okay. And by, and also by nuance, I mean that critical race theory says race is an important central component, right? It's a, it's clearly a, a key component to how society operates and produces racial inequality. But not everything is always about race, right? And I point out in the article, one critical race theorist, John Calmore says, we're not, uh, critical race theory says, doesn't say all inequalities are based on race that deal with people of color. No, it's saying that in any uh, given situation where there is inequality, it could be about race. And so you have to investigate and figure out, well, is there a racial component to certain inequalities? And so that's part of the nuanced analysis. It's investigatory, right? It investigates issues rather than having conclusions and imposes those conclusions on a set of facts. And then finally, um, the fourth theme is it's a nonviolent movement. It's, a, it's about peace, right? It, um, some of the characterization of critical race theory emphasizes it's kind of violent in nature, like it wants to overthrow the social, uh, current social order. Um, critical race theory is at heart nonviolent. It's about community building. And it's even about things like friendship, empathy, solidarity. And if you look at critical race theory uh, articles, um, there isn't, it's not, I think people think, assume there's some kind of hostility, for example, racial hostility to whites as white oppressors, racial oppressors, that's absolutely not true. It's really, um, it's kind of, uh, critical race theory has morphed and evolved into a very kind of inclusive movement where it's about coalition building across, and this is where it's broader than race. It's about race, gender, class, um, sexual orientation, where it's about building coalitions to promote really social justice for all. So I would identify those four themes. And I think if you think about those four themes, they're hard to, uh, it's hard to demonize if you really get at what critical, the core themes of critical race theory. How can you demonize nonviolence, right? How did they demonize? Uh, Peaceful. What what, what were the the pieces of it that were demonizable? Or what are the mischaracterizations that made it so? Mm -hmm. I would venture that 99% of those people who criticize critical race theory have not read a single article that's actually critical race theory. Their understanding of critical race theory comes from Fox News. And so it's how Fox News have, has characterized critical race theory. This, by the way, is, and also, the reality, Dave, this yeah. is also Dave Chappelle's uh, defense of his own specials. He says, well, people are criticizing uh-huh. my specials, watching my specials. But anyway, keep going. 
Right. And so uh, critical race theory, they are able to demonize it by characterizing them on their own terms and then saying, look how look look at what we say critical race theory is and look how bad it is. And so, for example, one of the th- themes about the critical race, anti-critical race theory uh, movement is that critical race theory is about labeling whites as racial racial oppressors by virtue of being white and even white children as racial oppressors. There's nothing in critical race theory that says anything of that kind, where by virtue of being white, you are a racial oppressor. What does make you a racial you are responsible. Who, who is responsible? Uh, who is responsible? Mm-hmm. And what does make you a, what does make a person, uh, presumably a white person, uh, an yeah, oppressor? Right. Well, and that's the thing. Uh, most critical race theorists don't speak in that language of oppressor, oppression, and the oppressed. Um, and critical race theory would not focus on who's the oppressor and what makes that person oppressed. Critical race theory focuses in really on systems of racial inequality rather than individual actors who engage in oppression. And that's a mischaracterization, right? To think that critical race theory talks about oppressors and uh, the oppressed in that kind of way. They, it really does not. Um, I'd be hard pressed to find an actual critical race theory article, especially in legal academia, that t- uses that kind of language. So give an, give an okay. example then mm-hmm. of a system that critical race theory would, ha- maybe even mm-hmm. has discussed, and how they went right. and how they analyzed it, right? So obviously in the mm-hmm. news, a ton has been assistance to public safety and community and community safety mm-hmm. and police and police officers and the system of, 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 um, of criminal justice, uh, that is one area, but maybe we want to pick an entirely different one because it's, you know, maybe less emotionally charged for so many people. Right. Uh, but yeah, give, give an example of a system that uh, yeah. might get theorized about critically in terms of race. Transportation. Transportation is an issue that is promotes systemic inequalities that has promoted systemic inequalities. And you cannot really pick and say, well, this these people are our fault. Okay, so for example, the highway system um, created by Dwight Eisenhower, the building of federal, uh, using federal money to build highways, roads, et cetera, a lot of decisions about where to place roads and highways was about, ended up destroying black communities or segregating black communities. And those effects of transportation inequality still exist today. There are communities still divided because of the way highways were constructed. And that I consider a you know, systemic inequality, right? It's not about individual actors who built roads in a particular way. There yeah, were so the house I grew up in. Broad, the, mm-hmm. Yeah, the house I grew up, forgive my interruption. Uh, the, no, no problem. The house I grew up in was bought for, uh, I'll use my neighbor, my, uh, my neighbor's house he bought on the GI Bill. Uh, he was able to get mm-hmm. a fourplex uh, also using the GI Bill. He has now retired to the fourplex, sold the house. I think he bought the first house for 50 grand, sold it for like a million dollars, right? Used that mm-hmm. money. And, and, and his entertainment, his entertainment, excuse me, his retirement, hopefully some entertainment, but his retirement is now taken care of. Not because there was some, uh, presumably some particularly racist actor who was trying to design a pathway for him to have a better a better experience than the people at the time he got it. At the time he got that, a black person literally could not get a loan in this neighborhood. Right. So right. and 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 there are probably some racist people who are involved in that process. But, you know, ultimately right. they were drawing red lines, et cetera, and just kind of following the following the rules the system laid down. Uh, but there are families who don't live in this area. And there's, you know, my neighbor who gets to retire, you know, lived a middle class life, but gets to retire very, very comfortably. Yeah, and not right. because of somebody in a pointy white hat. Right. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what critical race theory focuses on. It's not about like attributing blame to individual whites. Absolutely not. And so uh, that's a mischaracterization of critical race theory. But I think people think that. Right. And so the the uh, anti-critical race theory movement has been able to define critical race theory on their terms using relying on disinformation. They basically made up and said, this is what critical race theory is about, even though it has really nothing to do with that. And then they've been able to demonize it in that particular way. And really, we, what you can think about the attack on critical race theory is really a broad, like you said, it's a broader attack on anti-racism. A lot of the critiques of so-called critical race curriculum is not even is not, is not even critical race theory at all, right? It's just teaching history. 
the history of slavery, history of segregation. And people are opposed to that history, discussion, discussion of that kind of history. And that's not critical race theory, that's just teaching history. But they've demonized it and say it's about, you teach that history, it makes white children feel discomfort, anguish, they feel guilty, and that's a bad thing. And therefore, that's, and that's critical race theory, that's what critical race theory is about, and this should be banned. So that's, that's how the demonization has occurred. It's not even attacking critical, really, it's not really addressing critical race. Critical race theory is just a name given to dealing, uh, to attacking really anything that deals with almost virtually anything that deals with race uh, in terms of history in particular. You analogize in your article that mm -hmm. uh, critical race theory has become the 21st century Willie Horton. Explain. I mean, we know that Willie Horton was a campaign tactic of the right. 1988 presidential election. Right. Uh, George uh, Bush's campaign manager mm -hmm. Atwater used that to exploit, exploit uh, race-based fears. Uh, he, he then, um, uh, Lee Atwater, uh, they ran those ads in that race. It's credited with or discredited with being a decisive tool uh, in that presidential election. Atwater had his famous or maybe infamous, infamous deathbed apology saying he really uh, regretted using race as, as a divisive issue. Uh, why do you say, feel free to add or subtract from any of the background I just gave, but why do you say and why do you think it's justified to say that the current debate around critical race theory is like Willie Horton? One key reason for that connection is about politics. It's Right, the use of Willie Horton was about getting George Bush re uh, elected as president. And the s demonization of CRT is a really a campaign strategy to further the GOP's um, political um, goals, which is in, at the federal level to take back Congress, take back the Senate, take back the House, the Senate, and then also the presidency, and then at the local, and just basically win as many elections as possible. And so it's it's like Willie Horton because it's really a tool by conservatives, uh, by uh, political conservatives to win elections. And it's also similar because, as you mentioned, right, it's about playing on racial fears. Willie Horton played on the racial fears of the dangerous black man as a criminal who is um dangerous and threatening to the interests of civilians and white civilians in particular and crt is the racial boogeyman right today to say here's the dangerous uh black ideology that is about um not harming whites but it's maybe maybe in fact you can think about it as it's really about harming whites and it's all it's about you're saying it is about negative light. Wait, 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 what is about harming whites that they think that critical race theory and who's the they um, you're saying the promulgators of some of a cons uh, of a yeah. conservative misinformation campaign mm -hmm. say that it right. is right threatening to whites and even maybe it's about harming the interest of whites because uh one of the articles i've written by by chris rufo the main um theorizer about regarding the uh, uh, anti-critical race theory movement talks about how critical race theory is about violently overthrowing the current social order. They're against the constitution, right? And that once they get into power, they're going to impose a totalitarian dictatorship based on furthering so-called anti-racist goals. That is about inflicting harm, right? They're portraying critical race theory as a threat to the well-being, the lives of uh, whites specifically. So it's playing on that kind of fear. You mentioned that mm -hmm. now, or I guess you mentioned a line, and then my mind thought a few other things. That uh, now, mostly across the uh, the political spectrum, if such a thing exists, there mm -hmm. is a uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is citable authority for a, ra a range of voters. And so you said, so, okay, Martin Luther King said, I want to be judged by the content of my character, not the color of my skin. And you said, but it, but actually Martin Luther King talked about more than that. And the challenge we have with uh, racism in the United States is more than just that thing. Uh, right. Keep citing Martin Luther King. What was, what's the line that people are missing 
beyond the judging, beyond the individual, trying to excise from ourselves our mm-hmm. our our almost intrinsic racial biases, right. and that ain't mm-hmm. the only thing we got to deal with. What was Martin Luther King talking right. about in a different stanza? He was talking about systemic racial inequality. Uh, I would argue that if you had to characterize Martin Luther King in his writing, he would be very comfortable with critical race theory. If you read his, especially his later writings, a lot of it sounds it sounds like critical race theory talking about systemic racism, talking about need for race conscious affirmative action to deal with that kind of racism that no, you can't eliminate racism just by treating people, trying to focus on treating people by the content of the character. That's not enough. He even critiques white moderates for not doing enough for to promote racial justice. So um, if you, so you could do this test where you give people some passages written by Martin Luther King, but don't say it was written by Martin Luther King. And they would, I'm just, I think a lot of people who are already predisposed to be against critical race theory would say, oh, this is critical race theory. It's um, making white people feel guilty. It's about calling white people oppressors. And Give an that, example. But it would be Martin Luther King. Well, I can't speak, think of a specific, but for example, his he has spoken and talked about white critiquing white moderates who don't do enough Right, didn't do enough to promote racial equality, the civil rights movement. So you could give a statement about that. You could give a statement about um, his support of affirmative action, right? And talking about systemic inequality. Anything, any of those passages, you could give them uh, things you've written about those topics, and people could, would, if they didn't know, it was Martin Luther King, dismiss it as critical race theory. And so it, that one line, right, does not, does not do justice to his body of work, his body of writing about race and racial inequality. It's a total distortion um, about Martin Luther King. You write that the attacks on critical race theory is more insidious mm-hmm. than the campaign ads demonizing Willie Orton. Back that up. Okay. One, the, one of the key reasons is at least – uh, Willie Horton, what happened with Willie Horton, their, that campaign, um, I think everyone recognizes now there's consensus with um, there's a lot of racism involved, right, playing on racial fears. But one thing it was based on was actual truth, actual facts. There was no dispute that Willie Horton was a convicted felon. There was no dispute that he was serving life in prison. There was no dispute that he was on furlough and then he committed certain crimes while he was on furlough. Okay. Critical race theory, on the other hand, is ba- what we've just been talking about based on misinformation, disinformation, mischaracterizations, on, based on falsehoods about what critical race theory is, based essentially on big lies about critical race theory. And so it's a form of disinformation in a way that Willie Horton was not. Um, it was in certain ways, but not to the extent that the attack on critical race theory is. So that is my... Uh, that's why I called it a little more insidious than the Willie Horton attack because now it's part of a disinformation campaign. Um, it's, prop- it's propaganda um, in a way that Willie Horton, the Willie Horton campaign was not. And then the other, in light of what happened with Virginia, the Virginia elections, um, I have another aspect to the insidiousness of the attack on critical race theory. And it's not maybe insidiousness is not the right word, but the power of this anti-CRT attack. It's more powerful, more influential than what happened with the Willie Horton campaign. And what happened with Virginia is an example of that. The key thing about Virginia that really surprised me, it surprised me, even though I had written my article, it's going to be critical razor is going to be used as an election campaign tool to get GOP candidates elected. But in my article, I focused on how the critical race theory attack would motivate and energize the base, the GOP base, the Trump voter, non-college educated whites. That's not what happened in Virginia. Those voters voted for um, Youngkin. But what critical race theory did was get college educated whites who voted for Biden to vote for Youngkin. Okay, their polling data, both before and after and exit polling data, would suggest Biden voters voted for Youngkin and critical, the attack on critical race theory had a big role in that. 
And so it's that what that did that, like I said, that I didn't write about that aspect. I didn't think about uh, the anti-critical race theory attack being going to be able to motivate Biden Democrats, but it did. And that's even raised, should raise even more alarm bells for the Democrats to say, all right, uh, this thing has a life of its own. It needs to be countered. It needs to, there needs to be a much stronger, more aggressive response to critical, to the attack on critical race theory. So that's my other argument for why it's more insidious and even more powerful. It's created, it's literally created a whole movement for on the right. It's, it's really the anti-CRT movement. I call it, I keep calling it a movement because that's what it is. It's the new, it's a new version of the Tea Party. It's a 2020, 2021, 2022 version of the Tea Party. Uh, the Tea Party, what the Tea Party was in 2009 after Obama's election. So, so that's what, my case. That's my argument. So what should be the response? So this is a part of the, uh, I did not write about this. This is, if I write a follow-up article, this is what I would focus on, the counter-messaging that needs to be uh, engaged in by liberals, by Democrats to counter critical race theory. You cannot ignore it, which is what uh, McAuliffe did in Virginia. He just tried to ignore it and just said, Youngkin's uh, is basically like Trump and that's why you should vote for me. Don't vote for him because he's Trump. That's it. And did not address the respond aggressively and counter message regarding critical race theory. That is what needs to be done now. An aggressive, effective counter messaging com- campaign to counter and to kind of debunk and kind of take the life out, the steam out of the anti-critical race theory movement. So that is what needs to be done. Yeah, so what's and that then, counter? That's what yeah. I'm asking you. What are the? Uh, what it, is the counter message? No, it yeah. even it even it even is sort of interesting to me, right? If the that that the uh, Washington Monthly prides itself mm-hmm. on being a truth-telling analytical journal, right? And it therefore hesitates, I presume, to mm-hmm. uh, offer prescriptions of how to ensure that a, the truth-based messaging um, had a chance right. to get its shoes on while lie-based messaging was making its way around the world, uh, which to me I sort of put in the same, you know, for me, lazy bucket of somebody titling their academic movement without too much thought of uh, how it might am- actually impact the public policy debate, even though if you're writing a uh, set of RV articles, all you're doing is trying to impact the, pol- the public policy debate, right? Yeah, you're doing that in an acad- mm-hmm. academic setting, but that's still all you're doing, right? You, you mm-hmm. might persuade a judge and you might persuade a legislator and you might persuade somebody in their staff, but that's all you're doing, right? You're not, you're not going to win a Nobel Prize and invent a, you know, in, invent a new widget that does that thing. All you're doing is lobbying human beings, but with lots of words and footnotes instead of a few words and clicks. Uh, the uh, so I still right I, I still have a I have a grumpiness that my favorite people are uh, include uh, academic elites and I have some grumpiness with them because mm-hmm. the that I haven't yet figured out how to come to grips with rhetorically or even emotionally I haven't talked about a coach or a therapist yeah. or even give with a guess but right. a little bit of grumpiness right. they think it's somebody else's job to figure mm-hmm. out how we're actually going to have a pro-democracy set of conversations. How are we actually going to have a society that relies on... I have the same, some of the same overlapping frustration with journalists, right? I, mm-hmm. I think, well, it's going to be somebody else's job. And, and right. but my question is, whose job is it? Whose job is it to make sure that uh, the critical race theory isn't something that ends up in a mischaracterized fashion shifting what's a, what kids are actually going to be able to you know, impact actually school funding? Right. I mean, that right now there can be real impacts. What happens in the state of Virginia? Whose job is it to deal with that? So I ask you, sir, what should be the counter messaging? OK, so a couple of things like one, who's who's doing who's got to do, who's got the responsibility right, to do the counter messaging. And here's the thing. I would agree to some of your critique that the I wouldn't call them elites. Right. I wouldn't call us elites, but academics, liberal academics may have been too insular in terms of their audience and who they're speaking to and their language, okay? And they need to expand because you're absolutely right. Critical race theory wants to change policies, right? Want to make policy reform, real change. And so in order to do that, you gotta expand in terms of who your audience um, might be, okay? And here's what the right does that the left doesn't do, which is take their academics, their intellectuals, and make them part of the more political 
um, landscape, make them part of the um, a big part actually of getting the political, the you know the conservative politicians whatever elected to make it to make intellectualism political, and they have foundations, think tanks devoted that clearly have a political aim, like the Heritage Foundation, Cato Institute, Manhattan Institute. Where it's not just about the uh, the um, objective academic pursuit of knowledge and truth. No, there are those think think tanks have these political goals in mind. There is no liberal version of that, of those kinds of think tanks. And I think we do need them. The liberals, you need liberal versions where you meld in the academic theory with political public policy, put them together, and you generate scholarship academia which is geared towards the general public which is geared towards political ends political goals and i think uh, that's exactly right i think your critique is makes is valid right and that that's what um liberal academics need to do and so i mentioned uh, kim crenshaw's think tank i think is trying to do that so there's some movement but we don't we need a a liberal version of the heritage foundation we don't have that yet yeah, it's and a, we need it's, to construct and create that. Yeah, there are a number of challenges. One of them is how do you pay for it, right? So if you're yeah, uh, right. that that we don't live, if, if what we're worried about, even even using the terms right and left, which I try to avoid because I think that too is a construct and not particularly a helpful one. If we're thinking in terms of trying to make democracy work, trying to figure out how right. lots of people can live in a place together and have that place be a little bit better rather than a lot worse, uh, that, that as soon as you, that, that even the language I would describe that seems to matter, but part of the challenge we have in strategizing in favor of democracy is this thought that there are somehow symmetrical uh, symmetrical uh, power structures in place as all the left doesn't do well there isn't mm-hmm. there there is not an outfit here here are a few things that I've got to put out there so there is not an alternative to fox news if you right. people will cite right. news outlets that are not fox news they are not the equivalency and one of the mm-hmm. challenges they have right. that is that fox news has and an advantage republican party has now is it is more monotheistic, uh, more monochromatic. It is it more resembles a market that would be go that would be pursued by marketers than anything that is a different political party. Let's take the Democratic Party, which part of its nature is that it is multicultural, right? That it is that it is not what if you look at Fox News viewers, they skew older, they skew vastly whiter, and they skew vastly right. more Christian, right? That is the Fox right. News viewer. And so you can say, okay, we're going to make all of them feel warm and cozy, and we are going to right. uh, lobby that group. And that group is also going to be majority of the Republican Party, and it has some coherence, and it has some built-in integrity. I don't mean that word in terms of honesty. If you try to do that same thing with a polyglot collection of human beings, it's a little different, right? You don't have you mm-hmm. don't have the same uh, you don't have that same messaging cohesion. Uh, another built-in challenge, right? Which is why I do put the I do right. put the responsibility to any listener. I put the responsibility to anybody I speak to. I put the responsibility on myself to any person involved in this stuff. That it ain't anybody's job, so it's got to be all of our jobs to have a right. discussion that is worthy of a democracy. And it's not just oh well, the Democrats should do blank. Who are those people, right? There, there is not the same set of funders. If you have a right. If you know, you go. If I used to attend, I was I was picked as the representative for my state to attend a, a a teaching session for legislators, training them. If you looked at the people who paid for that, it was large business organizations that had uh, business before the legislature. Now they didn't come in and do ads for Cargill. They didn't do ads for uh, for fossil fuels, right? Except for the fact that it was on the program, right? But it had some impact. There isn't an equivalent for like, I will do this and make no money doing it. Well, who's going to do it then? Right. If I lobby in order to get a no bid contract, well, then it makes sense. If I give a big financial contribution because I got a tax cut, makes financial sense. The the uh, philanthropic donors who give actually when it might even cost them money because it actually might increase their taxes. That's a harder thing to find. Forgive my soapboxing. Right. Uh, but I think it's got to be all of our jobs. Uh USA Today op-ed, hard pivot, forgive it, suggested that Asian Americans have a target on their back due to critical race theory. I'm not even sure if you saw it. I only saw it because it was forwarded to me uh, by uh, by somebody who helps out on this show, and thanks for doing that. Uh, is, that a, is that a fair and accurate claim? And if so, say more about it or push back on it. Yeah, absolutely not. It is, makes, it's not a fair claim. It, it's, it's, again, it's more disinformation. Uh, critical race theory, one of the founding 
critical race theorist is Asian American Mari Matsuda, and she's uh, she is highly supportive of Asian American and Asian American issues. Critical race theory is very supportive of Asian American issues. It's not there is no real there's no anti-Asian bias in critical race theory. It's completely, absolutely fabricated. There's even a thing called Asian crit, an offshoot of critical race theory focused on Asian American issues. There have been critical race theorists who focus on the systemic discrimination that Asian Americans have experienced historically and currently. Issues regarding Asian Americans being treated as a perpetual foreigner or uh, being used as a model minority um, to further really conserve aims. Um, there's been heavy, a lot of theorization about that. Um, and since there was a seminal article in 1993 published by Robert Chang, which talks about an Asian American critical race scholarship. So it is not, it, just to say it's anti-Asian makes absolutely no sense at all. I think the reason, the one reason why that uh, attack has some resonance is because most critical race theorists are not opposed to affirmative action for underrepresented groups. And Asian Americans, uh, some Asian Americans, think Amer affirmative action should be abolished because it hurts uh, Asian American applicants, you know, getting into Harvard or whatnot. But that's that's a policy dispute that people have. But that doesn't because you support affirmative action doesn't mean you're anti-Asian or you have anti-Asian bias. I wrote a recent Washington just uh, just came out Washington Monthly article about this particular issue by Asian Americans and the affirmative action debate. And it's not a critical race theory piece, but one of the points I make is that I fully acknowledge the existence of anti-Asian bias and discrimination, especially with the violence and since the uh, pandemic, it's real. And the, re and the reality that anti-Asian sentiment may infect admissions uh, decisions at elite colleges. I totally, I fully acknowledge that in my piece. And I also say, but I'm not against affirmative action for underrepresented groups. There's discrimination against Asian Americans that has nothing to do with providing uh, opportunities for underrepresented groups. It's just flat out, Asian Americans have a harder time than whites getting into some of these schools. That's just discrimination against Asian Americans, this fear of too many Asians, uh, et cetera. So it, it does involve just this flat out not wanting having too many Asians at Harvard. It's just discrimination against Asian Americans, not about affirmative action. So in other words, uh, Harvard would not want too many Asians, regardless of whether affirmative action existed or not. Okay, so I make that point, right? I can be, I can acknowledge anti-Asian racism, but still support affirmative action, and that doesn't make me anti-Asian. So, so that's my point. That's it's. I, I uh, it point. really I is more disinformation. Yeah, I'm not wanting to cut you off, but uh, so the as I think about, and we're going to be jumping around a little bit, you know, sure. either apologies or, or you're welcome. Uh, so I think about even the academics. So a couple of thoughts. One, like even just early on, I said, oh, we're going to have a conference on this. What are we going to call it? Well, what do we call it? You know, principled equality theory, right? And, and we're going to have discussions about and write papers about how do we actually have a uh, how do we actually have a set of discussions that are around the principles of equality, right? Well, that's a really different thing. Okay, so that's just a little plug. But then I also go, the second thought, again, nonlinear, forgive me, is if you, uh, the academic-based thinker, and here's where I where I will praise them, uh, the, the academic thinker, and that's and this is and this is not this show is not called democracy clickbait. It's called democracy nerd. So we're in favor. We're in favor of the people who get who get deep. In fact, that's where my curiosity goes. Uh, but the the person who try to publish a paper, right? You've published a bunch of stuff. I publish a little bit of stuff. Uh, if you start with an idea, or you tend to start with an idea, then you try to figure out the evidence around that idea. It, it, it hopefully is a hypothesis, not even a theory, right? Hopefully it is something you're willing to shift your idea after you've received evidence. And then you, uh, and then you garner that evidence, then you reach a conclusion, right? So that's how a, that's how a scientist, even a, even a social scientist would, would approach, roughly speaking, a topic. If you are the propagandistic theorist, if you are the, um, Oh, and then I got to bounce. Uh, if you are the power-based thinker, then you start with a symbol. You start with a conclusion. Well, let's just say you start with, a, with an objective, a political objective, and then you create a symbol. You say, we will now uh, define that symbol for a bunch of people. And then we'll be able to 
attach that symbol to anybody who's ever been near that symbol. And that is a major tool of the propagandist. I at least wanted to flag that, but I'm realizing that we are we are out of time. Uh, so uh, so I want you to respond to that or give your give your final thoughts. And what are you tracking? What people what should be people tracking next? Well, back to the messaging. Counter messaging is absolutely essential. And I think you're right that we need critical race theory needs to be translated. I think the language of critical race theory makes sense given its academic context, but for it to have real world impact to deal with real world political consequences, you have to translate it into language that people can understand, the general audience, the person in Peoria. And the mess that is actually what I'm working on right now is developing the counter messaging. Well, let's talk about when you've done that. Let's, let's let when you've talked, let's okay. do this again. Right. Forgive my stutter. Absolutely. Let's talk again when you've talked about that. Cause I'd be curious. Yeah, absolutely. Reginald CEO, professor. It's hard, Law. but I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's hard. Uh -huh. Thank you so yeah. much for taking the time today. We hope welcome. to talk to you again. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. Right. Thank you for having me. Democracy nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seeliger. Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, democracy. Democracy.